Welcome to Orders Beyond Borders, an audio interview series as part of the Berlin Social Science Center, Bitsy B's new blog. In this series, we bring you insights from leading scholars and emerging researchers in the field of international relations and global politics. This is a project by the International Politics and Law Department of the Berlin Social Science Center, run by the unit's global governance, governance for global health and global humanitarian medicine. Hello everyone, uh, today I have with me Siddharth Malavarapu, is a, he's a professor and head of the Department of International Relations and Governance Studies at Chief Nada University. His research interests encompass disciplinary histories of international relations with a focus on India. It's nice to have you here today. Thank you. And I'd like to begin by asking, what brings you to the Vitsipi today? Yeah, there are uh, three or four motivations which bring me to the uh, VZB. Uh, yeah. First, of course, I think uh, I've been impressed by its general institutional reputation for excellence. Okay. Uh, it's a combination which brings together, you know, I think lawyers, uh, political scientists, sociologists, and economists in one place. And the possibility for working on intersectionalities, I think, is particularly good in yeah. an environment like this. So that is one very attractive feature of the WZB. Apart from which, um, I also thought this would be a good opportunity to acquaint myself with some of the more recent ongoing debates in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we are interested, of course, uh, largely in questions which draw from our context, but it's also interesting to see how some of these questions which concern us also play out in other settings. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, questions relating to institutional design, governance issues, questions relating to more fundamental asymmetries of power and how they are thought about yeah. in different settings uh, are of particular interest. And finally, I thought it was also an opportunity to infuse a curiosity about the non-Eurocentric world mm -hmm. we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, and there I thought I'd, it would be an opportunity to bring to bear some sensibilities, ideas, perspectives from contexts outside of Europe. So I think it was an amalgamation of these three or four factors yeah. uh, which really brought me here. Amazing. And we are happy to have you here. It's been an intriguing conversation with you so far. So I'd like to use this opportunity to ask uh, the, the questions you explore um, what drove you to explore these questions? In your opinion, what do you think constitutes the IR discipline today? Okay. Yeah, I think if I were to sort of run a thread through most of my academic interests, mm -hmm. uh, one area which does uh, very keenly sort of, uh, you know, take a lot of my time and attention is the broader question of the politics of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the term politics of knowledge, I really here refer to the asymmetries in the manner in which knowledge is produced, what we treat as knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, when, within the realm of the social sciences and humanities, uh, it also raises fundamental questions about the sites of theory production. Mm -hmm. um, how is theory then circulated? Uh, what is the nature of uh, ideas when they transform, when they get into other settings? Mm -hmm. The notion of what Walter Mignolo and others have called transculturation. Yeah. So some of these questions, I think, are recurring questions, uh, even with regard to it could be perhaps applied not just in the context of international relations, but other fields of study. Yeah. But of course, my gaze very often turns to the discipline I've been socialized in, which is international relations. Mm -hmm. 
IR as a discipline um, is sort of notorious for its ethnocentrism of an Anglo-American yeah. variety. Um, and today, of course, there are more voices uh, making a claim on the term global international relations. Yeah. But if IR to be, were to be a genuinely global discipline, mm-hmm. this is a question I ask myself. What are the three or four things which would be important to sort of do yeah. uh, to make the discipline a more global discipline. Mm-hmm. And I would argue here that the politics of knowledge becomes important because we need to be open to other modes of thinking about yeah. sometimes universal questions like order, political order, justice, legitimacy, but also to recognize that uh, there is the possibility that different traditions um, also have other areas of inquiry which yeah. are not normally studied within the remit of the discipline. Uh, so these are some broad sort of uh, thrusts. Uh, my more my own more interesting sort of uh, take, uh, I would think, on recent work is to sort of go a little beyond critique and lament and to really begin uh, mining intellectual inheritances in archives, mm-hmm. uh, which open up the possibility of constructively reconfiguring some elements in the manner in which we think about questions in international relations. Uh, mm-hmm. So towards this end, uh, I've been particularly interested in the work of scholars from Africa, from the Arab world, yeah. from parts of Asia, um, and to see how they've begun to rethink some elements uh, which we otherwise took for granted within the mainstream field of international relations. Yeah. And on the question of you know how global international relations is, a lot of scholars from the global south have you know criticized international relations on this basis. What do you think, you know, um, do you think the marginalization of uh, global south within international relations could be overcome? And in your opinion, how? Yeah, I'm somewhat cautiously optimistic about the future. Uh, I do think that there is a recognition today uh, that diversity matters, uh, especially when it comes to thinking about knowledge structures. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is some intrinsic value bringing in voices from other places. Uh, There's an intrinsic value of listening uh, to voices which have been submerged for various reasons in the past historically. And uh, I think this recognition is an opening which creates the possibility uh, for creative work from all these other areas within the global south Mm -hmm. uh, to find a way of conversing with the global discipline of international relations. Uh, The intent here is not to be nativist or to suggest that, you know, the font, all the font of knowledge comes from one particular site or location, but to bring these modes of thinking and conversation with uh, existing bodies of knowledge. Uh, and that, I think, might be a productive exercise on its own. And here again, I would sort of argue that uh, the discipline will fare well if there are more scholars with a critical sensibility mm-hmm. who sort of bring to bear good intellectual history along with theoretical and empirical interests. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, pay attention to the axes of class, gender, and race. Uh, because I think these are schisms which continue to, in a sense, structure Mm -hmm. uh, much of international political life. Uh, So I think some of these dimensions uh, are worth mulling over while thinking about the future trajectory of the field of international relations. And throughout your career, uh, how has the issue of diversity within international relations changed? Because uh, if I look at myself as a younger scholar, 
I worry about the issues that we still face as, you know, uh, Global South scholars in mainstream. So how has it changed over time in your career and how can it be further improved? I mean, I can reflect, um, you know, quite, um, I think, to an extent more confidently about the setting I come from, which is yeah. India. And I know that a previous generation of scholars, uh, some of whom were as competent and perhaps had interesting ideas, um, not all of them found a receptive global home for these ideas. Yeah. Uh, today, for various reasons, partly also because of improved communication and technology, mm. uh, there's the possibility of reaching out to um, academics working on similar questions from other parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, but that apart, I think um, the world seems to be more interested in Asia, for instance, uh, this, you could argue, has to do with material standing as well and yeah. material issues. So China's um, enhanced status as a material power might have also created a greater degree of interest um, in Chinese knowledge systems. Yeah. Uh, so this, of course, begs a larger question about whether epistemic interest is a consequence mm -hmm. um, of material standing. And that is a, that could also be a problem in itself because yeah. um, you could have interesting ideas from places which do not necessarily have a similar material standing. Mm -hmm. uh, there could be interesting traditions in philosophy in other modes of inquiry, but for various reasons um, of material, uh, um, you know, asymmetry mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily get a hearing. But I think this is the sort of broader um, setting in which today, for various reasons, Asia at least where I'm located, yeah. there is a greater degree of interest. And I would argue that there is similar interest in other parts of the world because there is a recognition now that um, I think neither the Global South nor the Global North are monoliths. Yeah. Uh, there's a fair amount of internal diversity mm -hmm. and difference. Uh, and there are also some similarities and commonalities. I don't want to only emphasize on the diff differences uh, aspect of it. But it's this sort of curiosity about going a little beyond the standard old versions of, you know, the global north and the global south yeah. uh, that might induce uh, a greater acquaintance with some bodies of knowledge from these regions. And on that note, it makes me wonder, you know, on bringing in the global south into international relation and also theorizing within that space. Is it a question or is it an issue that, you know, because we have, we, the global south lacks the capability to actually push academia forward into the mainstream? Or is it, a, is it an issue of, you know, the mainstream not hearing uh, or taking into account these cases and these uh, writers and researchers? Right. I think one fundamental issue has been in the past, clearly a lack of receptivity to these ideas. Yeah. Um, of course, it also has to do with the fact that many of these ideas did not even reach the destinations where exactly. they were supposed to reach. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were they remained provincial for reasons um, not to do with the ideas themselves, but to do with various uh, asymmetries relating to the dissemination of ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, I think location matters. So if you're... Um, positioned in an Ivy League university in the West, yeah. uh, the likelihood of a good idea you have, you know, traveling to other parts of the world is so much more mm -hmm. uh, than the likelihood of an idea which perhaps is uh, also interesting enough and has uh, analytical life way beyond that, its own immediate context, yeah. traveling to another part of the world. 
So I think um, for me, I've sort of um, much of my sort of subsequent socialization has also been through very interesting fiction writers uh, who've at moments in time talked about their political awakening. Mm-hmm. So I would, for instance, think about Chinua Achibi as one instance of that, yeah. in which he says, you know, for a long while he didn't realize that many of the characters in the novels he was reading mm-hmm. uh, all belonged to one particular denomination and, you know, the good guys were all of one uh, particular strand and the the bad guys were all of one other particular type and that it was uh, this was the natural way stories were told um, and then he realizes that you know there's something wrong with this at some point and then he begins to sort of I think he does a beautiful job and things fall apart of imbuing the English language with African met- metaphor yeah. uh, but that's uh, that's that process of awakening I think is interesting and it takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very often a standard 101 introduction in international relations, yeah. um, you know, uh, sometimes glosses over even subjects as important for us in the global south like decolonization, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, in many ways defined our subsequent political trajectories as well. Uh, so it's these sorts of questions or questions relating to the lineage of concepts, you know. Uh, so can you talk of failed states and failing states? Uh, absent the culpability of colonial powers and creating hollowed out states, mm-hmm. um, you know, or think about um, other ways in which uh, even so, for instance, a notion like hegemonic stability theory, yeah. um, you know, that hegemony is good news, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of systemic stability yeah. or the, the idea that the Cold War was a period characterized by a long peace yeah. when for many countries in the global south it was characterized by um, you know, a whole range of conflicts, yeah. uh, you know, f- uh, for no fault of theirs. Uh, so I think all of these uh, elements of a critical sensibility needs to infuse mm-hmm. our understanding of international relations. And once this process begins, I think we will have, of course, uh, a much more uh, a much more genuine claim to the notion of global. And this brings me, you know, straight into the next question that I want to ask now, like through your work, what gaps have post-colonial approaches strived to to bridge in international relations? Yeah, I think post-colonial approaches uh, within the larger family of critical approaches, yeah. uh, I think bring to bear um, a couple of fairly important arguments about thinking about the nature of the political itself. Yeah, uh, I think one, of course, they've restored agency to those at the receiving end of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very often, even if you think about the colonial encounter, and it's a deeply asymmetric encounter, but it's if post-colonial literature, in a sense, tries to also res- restore agency to the colonized and yeah. not see them merely as passive recipients uh, of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you think about uh, the significance of political ontology for questions of epistemology, which yeah. means uh, you know this whole process of uh, being latecomers in history in some sense to the modern statehood process, mm-hmm. uh, while very often some of them, even you know, these formerly decolonized uh, you know, st- states uh, had long civilizational histories. Yeah. Um, so, but even thinking about what this particular political ontology meant in terms of even thinking about their own place in the world, mm-hmm. uh, I think is something which post-colonial scholars are very interested in. Uh, third, of course, the recognition that there is no single narrative, even when it comes to the broad sort of drive, drivers of history like modernity yeah. or the workings of capitalism, for, for that matter. Um, and of course, I think 
Uh, one other contribution to post-colonial literature is to challenge the datelines um, and some of the amnesia of international relations when it comes to, like I said earlier, questions like decolonization mm. or treating, uh, treat, uh, or for instance, treating 1648 as the sort of point of departure to understand modern statehood. Uh, I think uh, these are some questions which post-colonial literature is interested in ad- addressing. Yeah. Uh, and the intersectionality issue, of course, of how race, class, gender, uh, and other aspects sometimes, uh, you know, uh, intersect and are heaped on each other, yeah. uh, and which generate particular kinds of political outcomes as a consequence. Yeah. There is a there is a common question that arises, uh, you know, between scholars of post-colonial studies and international relations, and it's always the question of. Uh, like, why do we need post-colonial studies? International relations have already theorized and explained most of these issues, agency and, and all that. Why exactly do we need post-colonial theories? Yeah, I think uh, it's important to recognize that post-colonial, post-colonialism as a sensibility hmm. uh, is a very specific context-based sensibility uh, which emerges from a particular history. Um, and it's important, if, if good social science is also about empathy, about putting yourselves in the shoes of others, uh, then I think one part of that enterprise is for, for you to step into the world of others. Yeah. Uh, imagine a history of political socialization which took another trajectory, not the standard trajectory which West European states took, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, then you might end up with somewhat different furniture in the room, uh, with a different prioritization of what matters in the international system, uh, with a different recognition of what is of value in terms of even thinking about questions like order and justice and legitimacy. Uh, I think all of these aspects uh, are somewhat more saliently explored through this particular lens of post-colonial thinking. Mm-hmm. And again, I would argue that there's no quintessential one post-colonial theory. Yeah. Uh, people have approached it from the Caribbean world, the Black Atlantic. People have approached it from parts of Asia. I know there are a bunch of scholars in, in South America who mm-hmm. raise interesting questions with regard to post-colonial thinking, scholars in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we witness here is a certain recognition of the importance of a, a sensibility of um, not of transcending being a victim uh, and not really looking at yourself as merely victims of history, but as active shapers of history. Yeah. But this active shaping also involves consciously revisiting our knowledge structures and knowledge systems, which very often have glossed over mm-hmm. other ways of being, other ways of thinking, uh, other ways of understanding uh, our current human predicament. And some... Co- Scholars uh, worry that uh, post-colonial approaches further, you know, widen the divide, you know, between the binaries that we talk about. Um, what, in your opinion, would you say post-colonial studies is doing in this regards? I think um, sophisticated post-colonial scholarship uh, doesn't admit of these binaries uh, yeah. in the manner in which they sometimes are hurled at those who do post-colonial theory. Yeah. Uh, I think they're uh, they're smart enough to recognize that there's fluidity in the world we live in, um, that these binaries sometimes are not to be treated as fixed and static entities. Mm-hmm. But having said all of this, uh, I think what is important to recognize uh, is the fact, as many post-colonial scholars would recognize, 
uh, that they're fundamental asymmetries. Uh, and these fundamental asymmetries have been historically generated. And sometimes the residues of these asymmetries also find newer manifestations in the contemporary world we, win it, we live in. Uh, so if you want to think about you know, whether a category like imperialism has any place at all in the world we live in today, or does the logic of imperialism assume a neo-imperial logic yeah. uh, in the contemporary world, uh, that would be a question which would be of interest to post-colonial scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and they would be interested in looking at it also in terms of hard empirics, in terms of concrete policy issues. You know, So uh, is it reflected um, in the realm of you know, things like internet governance or climate change politics, mm-hmm. or is it reflected uh, on trade questions? Is it reflected in, um, for instance, notions of good governance? Yeah. Um, so I think these are questions which postcolonial scholars will bring to bear a distinctive political edge and perspective uh, in terms of even addressing and thinking about these issues. Okay. Thank you. Um, the final question would be, uh, what literature in international relations uh, have has influenced you so far? Um, I would think there are three or four clusters of scholarship which have played a particularly influential role. I already talked to you about um, you know, learning about political awakening <laughs> through fiction writers mm-hmm. because uh, that actually, for me, uh, was very important in terms of recognizing um, you know what the prob- where the problem might lie yeah. uh, in terms of our blindness to some aspects of uh, what we treat as a natural order of things. Mm-hmm. So to denaturalize the world, I think, is an act of political awakening. Mm. That's one dimension. Um, second, I would think there is now a fair density of literature on decolonizing international relations. Uh, and there are some very good writings um, in this vein. Uh, I also think of scholars within international law, like Anthony Angie, yeah. uh, who's got that very fine book on colonialism and international law, uh, which opens up, again, very interesting questions in terms of um, the histories of international law and its contemporary life. Uh, so decolonizing IR, I think, is of interest in terms of a broad rubric of literature, Mm-hmm. I would think uh, within international law, I do want to mention TWAIL, uh, the Third World Approaches to International Law. Uh, I think there have been a lot of contestation around the word third world and do they really want to use it. Mm-hmm. But again, I think like we talked a little earlier about binaries, many of these sometimes are also shorthands yeah. uh, to express uh, a set of sensibilities mm-hmm. uh, for people in a sense located in one particular you know, uh, continuum within history. Mm. Um, and so to that extent, they still are useful heuristically. Yeah. Uh, we recognize, of course, that the real world is far more messy and complex. But to the extent that these categories make you uh, reside in, in a particular space, a yeah. particular world, theoretical, empirical space, uh, they have a certain value of their own. And I would think critical theories in general, which includes a family of approaches, uh, whether it's you know, neo-Marxist thinking within international relations, uh, Benno Teshke's problematization of Westphalia as a point of departure of modern world, uh, you know, Justin Rosenberg's work on the empire of civil society, or Stephen Gill, um, Susan Sclair, or back home, uh, I think of the scholarship of uh, B.S. Chimney within Twail. Um, so all of these bodies of thinking, I think, uh, have in some way or the other nudged me yeah. um, to ask some more uh, searching questions about my own political assumptions uh, when I approach the world I live in. 
Thank you. Uh, just let us briefly know if there are any of your books or articles that we should look forward to. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to share with you uh, a recently co-edited um, book. Uh, yeah. This is on this is titled India, the West and International Order. It's part of a multi-volume series which Kanti Bajpai, uh, my doctoral mentor and professor at the National University of Singapore, and I have put together. Uh, okay. The first volume is out, uh, but there are a few more volumes to follow. And the idea here really was, again, you know, getting back to the theme of a global IR yeah. uh, to identify intellectual resources, inheritances, uh, and ways of thinking about international relations from the part of the world we are most familiar with. Uh, and the idea here is not to sort of uh, posit any form of methodological nationalism or you know, any claims to nativism of a kind, but to sort of identify how the notion of the international itself or the concept of the international itself was thought through, dating back from a generation of anti-colonial nationalists um, right up to more contemporary times. Thank you. Thank you. So to our audience, it's India, the West and the International Order. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for this, Linda. Thank you for joining us on Orders Beyond Borders. If you have enjoyed this, check out our blog at ordersbeyondborders.blog.vitsibi.eu or follow us on Twitter using the handle at OBB blog as well as on Facebook. You will find these links and more information in the description to this episode. Also, would like to hear what you think. If you have any comments or feedback on the series, write to us. You can reach us via email at obb.vitcb.eu as well as through our social media channels. This interview was produced by me, Linda Irulo, and Cedric Hawk. The team also includes Mitja Sinknesh, Yelena Tupach, and Irem Ebetuk. That's it for today. Until next time.